I think I've probably mentioned a few times before uh, through the course of this study that, um, you know, I, I do struggle a little bit from time to time. Actually, maybe it's a lot. Maybe it's all the time with the, the desire to make sure we're connecting this study to real life, to sanctification, to our understanding of who God is, who we are, how we should respond, what the scriptures teach. Um, so when you, you engage in a study like this, it's, it's easy to con- kind of become somewhat detached in our thinking from, I mean, it's almost like we're doing this academic study of something that happened in the past or people that lived in the past. And, and we can, in our thinking, kind of become detached. We can sort of look at these events, these people, what they believe, what they taught, and we can sort of study them as though they're this thing out there or this thing under a microscope, if you think about it in the context of like biology or something, um, and, and never, never connect it to where we are, who we are, real life. And as I was thinking about that, particularly uh, continuing this look at uh, Augustine and more prominently the, the, the controversy that's probably the epic controversy that you would hear about or read about in, in church history with Pelagius and, and the Pelagian doctrine that, that he rebutted and refuted. Um, I think about how, you know, this, this of all points in history, this, this of all issues or subjects that we could talk about as we look at it from a historical perspective, really um, could and should be a, a stimulus toward greater spiritual discernment, uh, more enlivened spiritual affection for God, clearer understanding of who God is, who we are, and what He has done in salvation. And all these things, I think, um, you know, are, contribute to our continued walk with God in fellowship with Him and in imitation of Him and in being useful to Him for the kingdom purposes and the mission of the gospel. I, I thought about how, you know, a um, little personal anecdote, I may have told this story to you individually or collectively at some point in time or another. I don't know. Forgive me if I have. But, you know, when I met Alicia for the first time, she was a friend of mine's little sister. Uh, She came to Baylor. I was already at Baylor. Um, I wasn't a professor. I was a student. Just want to clarify. She came to Baylor as a freshman. I was still a student. Um, But she came and we met at my friend, her brother's apartment. People were over there and, and she came and I met her. And there was really... It was really a, a, a non-event. There was no sparks. It wasn't like chemistry. There was no magic, none of that. It was just sort of kind of a non-event. But then about a week later, I saw her at another event, and something happened. And I, I, I'm telling you, I'm just, I saw her, and something happened. And I'm like, I have to go talk to her. So, uh, I mean, I saw her from a distance and, and, and thought I had to go talk to her. And from that point forward, I wanted to get to know her. I didn't want to just have this, I, I, yeah, I know, I know Brett's sister. I, I wanted to know Alicia. I wanted to get to know her. And I can tell you, as we met, started dating, got engaged, got married, and just recently celebrated 25 years, getting to know Alicia has been a revolutionary experience for me. It's been life-changing. It's been, I'm not just saying this to, to 
praise her, although Valentine's Day is coming, so, you know, it's probably a good, you know. But, but I, I guess I'm just kind of drawing the analogy that it's a very different thing to know about something, right, than to actually know something, or even more significantly, to know of a person, to have casually met a person, rather than actually knowing someone intimately and and, and growing in your appreciation of and love for and affection for someone. That's a vastly different reality. And so when I think about this particular issue uh, that is on display in stark relief in the controversy between Pelagius and Augustine, this is one of those areas where if we look closely and we think carefully about it um, and, and reflectively about it, it's one of those doctrinal issues that should not remain at a clinical distance. It should penetrate us in ways that I think just enlivens us all the more to love God for who He is and for what He has done, to know Him more intimately and more clearly, and to have that knowledge of Him just again explode more in our, our adoration and our love and our praise. This is one of those issues. Um, there's also... A, a sort of mission purpose to this as well, uh, in that our our mission is to be heralds of the gospel, to in our in our efforts to um, counsel and disciple and spur one another on to love and good deeds and purity in the faith, to to have clarity in some areas of doctrine is a, is an important priority, and to also be sensitive and discerning about the times that we live in. And how, as we've said before, as we've looked at other um, heresies that the early church had to deal with, these, these heretical teachings never go away. They change shape, they modify, they get adapted to you know, a, a, a contemporary time, but they never go away. They're always there. And so to be able to uh, recognize them and to understand, oh, this is, this is just... This is just repackaged Pelagianism here. I mean, this is what we're dealing with here. So what is my approach to talking about this? What, how do I bring the truth of Scripture to bear on this particular sort of angle toward understanding the nature of man or the nature of sin or, or the nature of grace or what the gospel is all about or what the impact of the gospel really should be? I mean, how do I approach this? Well, having an understanding of these old heresies and how they were dealt with uh, gives us insight into how we deal with them now. I want to read to you an article. Uh, it's it's not too long. I hope it doesn't it doesn't uh, drone on for you. Um, it's a really insightful article and a really good sort of summation of what I just said about the nature of these kinds of heresies continuing on, particularly um, the the Pelagian viewpoints. And it's written by uh, R. C. Sproul. It's just the, the article is entitled Augustine and Pelagius. And here's, here's how it goes. Quote, it is Augustine who gave us the Reformation, end quote. So wrote B.B. Warfield in his assessment of the influence of Augustine on church history. It is not only that Luther was an Augustinian monk, or that Calvin quoted Augustine more than any other theologian that provoked Warfield's remark. Rather, it was that the Reformation witnessed the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace, over the legacy of the Pelagian view of man. Humanism, 
in all its subtle forms, recapitulates the, the unvarnished Pelagianism against which Augustine struggled. Though Pelagius was condemned as a heretic by Rome, and its modified form, semi-Pelagianism, was likewise condemned by the Council of Orange in 529, the basic assumptions of this view persisted throughout church history to reappear in medieval Catholicism, Renaissance humanism, Socinianism, Arminianism, and modern liberalism. The seminal thought of Pelagius survives today, not as a trace or tangential influence, but is pervasive in the modern church. Indeed, the modern church is held captive by it. What was, at the core, what was the core issue between Augustine and Pelagius? The heart of the debate centered on the doctrine of original sin, particularly with respect to the question of the extent to which the will of fallen man is free. Adolf Harnack said, quote, There has never, perhaps, been another crisis of equal importance in church history in which the opponents have expressed the principles at issue so clearly and abstractly. The Arian dispute before the Nicene Council can alone be compared to it. The controversy began when British monk Pelagius opposed at Rome Augustine's famous prayer, quote, Grant what thou commandest, and command what thou dost desire. End quote. That's from Augustine's Confessions. Pelagius recoiled in horror at the idea that a divine gift, grace, is necessary to perform what God commands. For Pelagius and his followers, responsibility always implies ability. If man has the moral responsibility to obey the law of God, he must also have the moral ability to do it. Harnack summarizes Pelagian thought, quote, Nature, free will, virtue, and law, these strictly defined and made independent of the notion of God, were the catchwords of Pelagianism. Self-acquired virtue is the supreme good which is followed by reward. Religion and morality lie in the sphere of the free spirit. They are at any moment by man's own effort. Quote. The difference between Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism is more a difference of degree than of kind. To be sure, on the surface, there seems like there is a huge difference between the two, particularly with respect to original sin and the sinner's dependence upon grace. Pelagius categorically denied the doctrine of original sin, arguing that Adam's sin affected Adam alone, and that infants at birth are in the same state as Adam was before the fall. Pelagius also argued that though grace may facilitate the achieving of righteousness, it is not necessary to that end. Also, he insisted that the constituent nature of humanity is not convertible. It is indestructibly good. Over against Pelagius, semi-Pelagianism does have a doctrine of original sin whereby mankind is considered fallen. Consequently, grace not only facilitates virtue, it is necessary for virtue to ensue. Man's nature can be changed and has been changed by the fall. However, in semi-Pelagianism, there remains a moral ability within man that is unaffected by the fall. We call this the island of righteousness by which the fallen sinner still has the inherent ability to incline or move himself to cooperate with God's grace. Grace is necessary, but not necessarily effective. Its effect always depends upon the sinner's cooperation with it by virtue of the exercise of the will. It is not by accident that Martin Luther considered the bondage of the will to be his most important book. He saw in Erasmus, his, his rival, 
a man who, despite his protest to the contrary, was a Pelagian in Catholic clothing. Luther saw that lurking beneath the controversy of merit and grace and faith and works was the issue to what degree the human will is enslaved by sin and to what degree we are dependent upon grace for our liberation. Luther argued from the Bible that the flesh profits nothing and that this nothing is not a little something. Augustine's view of the fall was opposed to both Pelagianism Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism. He said that mankind is a massa peccati, a, quote, mess of sin. That's something you might want to call your kids probably from time to time, you know, <laughs> little kids. You are a, you're a massa peccati. Do you know that? A mess of sin. Incapable of raising itself from spiritual death. For Augustine, man can no more move or incline himself to God than an empty glass can fill itself. For Augustine, the initial work of divine grace by which the soul is liberated from the bondage of sin is sovereign and operative. To be sure, we cooperate with this grace, but only after the initial divine work of liberation. Augustine did not deny that fallen man still has a will and that the will is capable of making choices. He argued that fallen man still has a free will, but has lost his moral liberty. The state of original sin leaves us in the wretched condition of being unable to refrain from sinning. We still are able to choose what we desire, but our desires remain chained by our evil impulses. He argued that the freedom that remains in the will always leads to sin. Thus, in the flesh, we are free only to sin, a hollow freedom indeed. It is freedom without liberty, a real moral bondage. True liberty can only come from without, from the work of God on the soul. Therefore, we are not only partly dependent upon grace for our conversion, but totally dependent upon grace. Modern evangelicalism sprung from the Reformation whose roots were planted by Augustine. But today, fast forward, the the Reformational and Augustinian view of grace is all but eclipsed in evangelicalism. Where Luther triumphed in the 16th century, subsequent generations have given the nod to Erasmus. Modern evangelicals repudiate unvarnished Pelagianism and frequently semi-Pelagianism as well. It is insisted that grace is necessary for salvation and that man is fallen. the, The will is acknowledged to be severely weakened even to the point of being 99% dependent upon grace for its liberation. But that 1% of unaffected moral ability or spiritual power, which becomes the decisive difference between salvation and perdition, is the link that preserves the chain to Pelagius. We have not broken free from the Pelagian captivity of the church. That 1% is the little something Luther sought to demolish because it removes the sola from sola gratia, grace alone, and ultimately the sola from sola fide, faith alone. The irony may be that that though modern evangelicalism loudly and repeatedly denounces humanism as the mortal enemy of Christianity, it entertains a humanistic view of man. This is the catch. It entertains a humanistic view of man and of the will at its deepest core. We need an Augustine or a Luther to speak to us anew, lest the light of God's grace be not only overshadowed, but be obliterated in our time. Now, here's the thing, guys. I'm sorry I, I read a long article, but I, to me, in thinking about this, this issue of the nature of man and the nature and need of grace, of God's sovereign work of grace, where those two things intersect or do they not intersect at all? 
One view terminates power and authority upon man, and the other terminates power and authority and kindness upon God and God alone. And if the ultimate objective of man in relationship to God is to bring him glory and honor, to radiate his goodness and his mercy and his kindness and the fullness of his attributes that we're able to emanate as as mortals, as redeemed mortals, if we are to do that effectively, doesn't it stand to reason that we need to know him clearly? And all of our focus and all of our joy and all of our passion and all of our satisfaction and all of our contentment must terminate on him and not on us. But if you have a view of salvation that really in effect terminates on you and your ability, your moral ability, then everything subsequent to that you could justify will terminate on you as well. Think of it this way. If I were to gather together at random, I mean just a complete random, a room full of a thousand professing Christians, and I'm talking really at random, a very broad cross-section, and I were to ask the question something like this, raise your hand if you believe that the, the primary reason for your salvation is that you needed to be forgiven of your sins and so that you could have a life that's fulfilling and fulfills a heavenly purpose, something to that end. How many of you believe that that's the pri- that, that, that effectively captures the primary purpose of salvation, of the gospel, of the work of Jesus on the cross? I almost can, I, I, I've never done this. I don't have statistical data, but I have good inclination that a large percentage of random sampling of confessing Christians would say, yes, that's the primary purpose. That is not what Scripture teaches about the cross, about the gospel, about the purpose of God's work in salvation. It does not terminate on man's ultimate need, but on God's jealousy for His glory and His righteousness and His justice. And the benefit of salvation is that man who is redeemed, has his eyes open to that wonder. And in his heart and his mind, he has an explosion of gratitude for God's goodness and grace and can therefore understand more clearly and and also as time goes on, the grandeur of God's goodness and grace and glory and then thereby imitate that and emanate that and be effective in, in compelling others toward the goodness and grace of God. But if it just terminates on me, then I am going to be one who basically conducts my life and characterizes my relationship with God as, what have you done for me lately? What's next? How about giving me gifts so that I can serve in the church so that people will think I'm a great Christian, so that people will admire me and think well of me and think highly of me? What happens when I'm in, in the context of a church and people start you know, upsetting me or frustrating me, getting on my nerves? Well, I'm probably going to, you know, if it goes on too long, I'm probably going to find a new church. Why? Because the Christian life is not supposed to be like this. I'm not supposed to be annoyed by all these other people all the time. I'm out. Do you see how that works in us? It, 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 it terminates 
our view of both who God is and who we are on ourselves. I read an article, another article today, this morning, and I, I, I don't have it here, and I, and I, I'm, I only read it once, so I don't, I don't want to mischaracterize uh, it, but it's basically a, an article by a, um, a professor at Cambridge over in England who, is, who wrote another, I don't know if it's another article or a book, that basically is, is sort of recasting Pelagius. Basically, the argument is that Pelagius has gotten a bad rap, and that, and that really, from a historical perspective, it, the, the way that Pelagius has been viewed is really unfair and mistaken. But one thing that caught my attention, not, not the primary arguments for, for that and, and the historical arguments that this, this author makes, what caught my attention was a paragraph about two-thirds of the way down where the author simply said, we still have not decided what our view is. And talking about humans in general or the church in general or whatever. We still have not decided what, you know, with definitiveness what our view is of, of what is required for us to be saved. We still have not decided. So all this argumentation about you know, re- recasting Pelagianism and, 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 and sort of more accurately depicting what their, that doctrine was all about and what Pelagius was all about uh, in a more moderate light, in a more fair light, the author basically tipped her hand. The writer of this article tipped her hand on the very premise that Pelagianism is based on, and that is man-centeredness. That I'm the one that gets to decide whether or not I want to accept the fact that God is sovereign. Or not in salvation. It's just, it's just absurd. So our clarity in these matters is of paramount importance. I want to give you a little bit more in the remaining time that we have left, and then I have, a, a, I think, a way to wrap this time up today at the very end, uh, circling back to um, a Reformed understanding of salvation. But I'm going to give you a little bit more, a little bit broader view of where Pelagius was coming from. What, was his, what, were, what were his primary arguments? What, was, what had him all exercised to begin with? And and, and what was sort of the premise that he was operating against? And, and I think it's important for us to do this because we don't want to assume that we understand a matter before we really do and then go ahead and begin to slam it and condemn it, right? You don't want to, I mean, that, that's just, that's really, I think, if we develop that tendency, then we're going to make massive mistakes in our interactions with people in our efforts to be uh, salt and light and to be effective evangelists and witnesses for Christ. It's the idea of, you know, taking, you know, we have, you know, we have right on our side. So just listen, I'm going to give you the tidbits about why you're wrong. But really the main thing is you just need to agree with me. Just agree with what I'm telling you. Well, I think we need to have a little bit more of a broader understanding of this so that we can speak to it, you know, effectively and clearly and with integrity. Um, Obviously, we talked about some biographical information of Pelagius, but the bottom line is he found himself in in Augustine's neighborhood in, in, um, in northern Africa in around 410. He had fled from Rome. He was a, from Britain, made his way to Rome, taught there for a while, and in 410 fled from Rome to North Africa uh, at the advance, you know, preceding the invasion of the Goths. You remember from, from our previous discussions that this is, this is in the, the season of the fall of the Roman Empire. 
these Germanic invaders from the north were coming down. They, eventually Rome was sacked and, and the, the eternal city was no longer eternal. The, 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 the city of God was vanquished, right? So major upheaval in, in the sort of the known world of that time was taking place. Well, uh, um, Pelagius was sort of in that environment and actually had to flee uh, from Rome prior to this invasion. He made his way down to northern Africa. And, and it, was, uh, it was in that period of time when he was in northern Africa that he was sort of confronted spiritually, intellectually, with uh, some of the writings of Augustine. But, but Pelagius wrote a lot. Uh, this question, I think, came up a little bit last week. The, the challenge we have with Pelagius's writings is that a lot of them are not existent in their totality. We have fragments of Pelagius's writings, and most of those fragments are contained in the writings of other people, like Augustine and like Jerome and others. But his writing appears to be written from a very intelligent standpoint. Um, he was very well-educated. Um, his, his writing was clear and thoughtful. Some of it was very devotional in nature. So I don't want to give the picture like Pelagius was a raving lunatic heretic that was just roaming the streets trying to draw people into the pits of hell through false doctrine. That is not how you would want to characterize this, this man. Um, he, his, his, much of his writings centered primarily on ethics and morality. He was a moralist. In fact, uh, I think we t- probably mentioned this last week, he was very exercised by the immorality of professing Christians, and, and even more in a more pronounced way, he was concerned that their, their understanding of grace was giving them license to sin. <clears throat> it's that idea that, you know, don't worry about it, it's, you know, all is forgiven, it's under the blood of Christ, you know, everything, it's all good. In other words, it gave people license to just do whatever they wanted in their life. And that really was a concern for Pelagius, which, you know, is a valid concern if that's what's going on, right? If people are, if people are claiming some kind of understanding, actually misunderstanding of the grace of God as sort of some kind of hall pass for debauchery, probably you're talking about someone that really is not a believer, really doesn't understand grace, is not redeemed, is unregenerate, and really shouldn't be in the fellowship of the church. But that's the environment that he was, he was in, and he was very concerned about that. Uh, he had two, two of his most influential works were Da Natura, or about nature, or of human nature. He really was writing about the nature of man, and a treatise on free will. And as I said, a lot of these are exi- existent in fragments as quotes and other works. So we don't have you know, a lot of complete works of Pelagius that you can draw upon. As I said, he was a moralist. Uh, listen, to, listen to what he said about his concern about moral conduct and, and the, sort of the abuse of grace and an understanding of grace to allow for sin to persist. This is a quote from Pelagius. Whenever I am called upon to speak upon moral training and the course of holy living, I am accustomed first to display the power and quality of human nature and show what it is able to accomplish, and then from this to incite the mind of the hearer to forms of virtue, lest it profit nothing to summon to those things which it would have thought to be impossible for it. So in other words, 
in the environment that he was occupying, in the culture that he was occupying, there were many who believed that they couldn't be holy. They couldn't pursue righteousness, and why bother? And it's covered by grace anyway. And his, his angle on all this was to say, no, 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 no. You are underestimating the power of your will. You're, you're diminishing the power of your free will to choose the good. So rather than coming at this from a biblical perspective, what people needed was really a clear proclamation of the gospel. And by God's kindness and grace, a work of God in their hearts and minds to transform them, he wanted them to, and because an understanding of, of Christianity in many respects was if you had been baptized into the communion of the church, you were therefore a Christian. So his response was to go after inspiring them to understand the power of their will to choose the good. But it was motivated by a reasonable concern for professing Christians living sinful lives unabated under the comforting umbrella of grace. Um, but he, he, he obviously uh, makes some very, very radical mistakes, and that's putting it mildly, as he tries to evaluate these things and, 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 and write about these, these things. So, for example, his understanding and what he taught about the soul of man begins with Adam. He said that Adam was not, was not created holy, uh, that he was constitutionally, he was neither inclined toward evil nor inclined toward good. He was just, he had the ability for either. His will was just neutral. So he starts at creation of the first man and basically says this is the characteristic of the soul of man, that he was created with a neutral will, neither inclined toward holiness and good, nor inclined toward evil or wickedness. He was morally indifferent. He was perfectly neutral. He argued, and then this is, this is how his logic went. You can kind of start to see how he, he used his own logic and his own rash, rational faculties to arrive at these conclusions. He argued that if, if Adam had possessed any moral character prior to moral action, his moral responsibility would be destroyed. So in other words, if he had been created with an inclination toward holiness and toward God, then he couldn't be held responsible for anything because he was created with an, a bent will toward one direction. In other words, moral responsibility, the freedom, the true freedom of the will was preeminent. In order for the will to be truly free, it couldn't be inclined in one direction or the other for it to be truly free and therefore be responsible for the actions that the will chooses. Okay, are you tracking with his logic a little bit there? I mean, that's, that's how he's kind of working this out in his mind. So forget what Scripture teaches for a minute. This is the logical you know, train that he's on. Um, <clears throat> he said that, uh, that because Adam was a creature, he was also created mortal. So death, physical death, 
is a function of being a creature, not a function of the curse. So you see how he's kind of working his way through the implications of original sin and how death, as a consequence uh, of the fall, is not part of the curse. Death is a part of just being created. So Adam was created mortal, is his argument. Um, He was destined to die physically, whether he ever sinned or not. So, So death is not a penalty of sin that's been passed on to all of Adam's offspring, that Death is just part of nature as a creature. You're born, you live, and you die. And that's what it means to be a creature. When it comes to his understanding of the fall and free will, this is where it really gets problematic. Um, as I said, he thought that there was nothing in Adam's inherent nature that was either good or, or ill, holy or sinful, that inclined him to the decision that he made to follow Eve's offer to partake of the forbidden fruit. So he just had a completely free decision that he made. And Adam's sin in no way affected his offspring, in no way did it affect Adam's posterity, except in this way. It, it established the example of choosing evil, of choosing sin. He said this, and this is, this is Pelagius referring explicitly to Paul's statement in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He insisted that, quote, it is said we sinned in Adam. So remember we read that briefly last week. That, you know, Romans chapter 5 is just, I mean, it's the consummate theological argument for original sin and the the ongoing implications of the fall and Adam being representative head of humanity and Christ being the one redeemer. I mean, all that's in in Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at that more closely next time. But but he said, it is said we sinned in Adam. This is Pelagius. It said we sinned in Adam, not because sin is innate, but because it comes from imitation. That was his his understanding, his, his argument that We sinned in Adam by imitation, not because we were now corrupted with a sin nature as a result of the fall. He says all men come into being in the exact condition as Adam was before the fall. So when we are born, we're not born as sinners. We're born, we're created, we're conceived as Adam was created prior to the fall. So we are born with a completely independent, fully free will, not inclined in one direction or the other. Same exact condition as Adam before the fall. And he believed that, now this is, this is where you can see how, you can kind of start to understand his, his premise as being not without some, some noble ideas. Okay, this is is as generous as I think I can be. I mean, he he, because of his understanding. Again, it starts with a premise about. I mean, he he, his his other, you know, premises are what's driving this one. So you have to go back further to see where this one goes wrong. But but he because he believed that Adam was created in this way, and he was created immediately by God. He couldn't be contaminated 
by sin. In other words, for man to now be born into sin would be, if I'm understanding this correctly, would be a slight against the goodness and character and integrity of God. So it's quite possible that in, in, in his mind, again, he got there from other wrong premises, but in his mind, it would be, uh, it would be a slam against the character and integrity of God to adopt a belief that man was created by God in sin, as he now is after Adam's fall. So, Adam's, so that's why he would say, Adam's offspring, the, the, the fall and the effects of sin are not innate in Adam's offspring. They, are, they come as a result of their imitation of Adam's original decision out of his free will to sin, but it's not innate. It's not a part of their nature. Because if it was a part of their nature, then that means that God has created man as he knits him together in his mother's womb, He's doing something that is, that is bending them towards sin, and that would be a slam against his nature. So you can kind of see how he's... That's why I say it's, there's some elements of honor to try to defend the integrity and character and righteousness of God, but... But it's humanistic. I mean, it's from yes. his own human feelings, not scripture-based. Yeah, I mean, like I said, he's got other things before that that kind of, that kind of lead him down to this conclusion that he feels like he has to defend God in this way. I mean, it's, 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 it's mistaken for sure. You said that, that is at the root of a lot of these that we talk about is it starts with that's right. trying to make God look good. That's right. But it comes from a human perspective. Right. And that's exactly right. So again, even, even, even if you, if you, if you, you know, go to YouTube and you start sampling different um, teachers who would, um, I mean, there are people that are out there that it's like their their ministry is to um, completely refute and undermine Calvinism, for example. So you've got entire ministries that are devoted to squashing any semblance of Calvinism in the church, and that's their mission, right? But the, it always it, it always does come back to their belief that it is up to them to defend God's character. In other words, it's up to them to make sure that people don't think God is not righteous or not just. In other words, it it does put the onus upon man to do that. And I just believe that it's much... I'm much more comfortable with thinking that God needs nothing from anyone ever at any given point in time. And anything he does to interact with man at any given point in time is not to make up for something that he lacks. That's the last place I would want to go as a rationale for anything or any reason that God does in his interactions with humanity or creation. I would attribute it to some other reason. Biblical reasons would be the uh, obvious preference there. But to go to a place where you all of a sudden, by virtue of your argument, you're somehow creating that God has a need for that from you. It, it's self-defeating you know, at its core. That's right. That's right. So i got to kind of fast forward and, and, and wrap up this, some of these ideas. So his, his understanding of the fall and the free will, like I said, he, he doesn't believe that Adam's 
sin uh, innately passed on to his offspring, but we, it passed on by virtue of imitation. Um, and again, defending the, the, the character of God. He said this, a sin is propagated by generation. Uh, sin is propagated by generation is totally contrary to the Catholic faith. Sin is not born with man, but is committed afterwards by man. It is not the fault of nature, but of free will. That's how he would articulate it. So according to Pelagius, an infant is not born in sin, nor does it possess any innate moral characteristics of sin. They are, they are obtained as the exercise of the will and the habits of sin develop. So basically, the fact that your child sins, it's your fault because you've shown them how to. You, you, they've seen it in you. They've seen it in other children. They've observed it. It's not innate. It comes from their seeing it on display and then developing habits. It's very socialized. Sin is a socialized construct as opposed to it being innate would be the, another way to, to think about it. It's conditioned by continual exposure to family and to society and to all the bad elements that are extant around us. And it sort of perpetuates in that regard. I mean, he says that it has the appearance uh, of being nature, but it's not. He recognized three elements in the, in the human will, the power or capacity to will, the willing, and the realization of acting. So there's power or capacity to, to, to will something, then there's the willing of it, and then there's the realization of acting upon the will. And the first of these, the power or capacity to will, that is the gift of grace. But the other two are holy of man, 100%. The willing to do something in the acting upon your will. That's all man. What God has provided is the ability to choose one or the other. That's God's gift of grace. So man has the ability to sin and the ability not to sin. And they're always equally present and at man's disposal. And this is, this is how Pelagius would measure man's responsibility. The only way man can be responsible is if he truly has completely freedom to choose, either good or either bad. That's the only way you can hold him responsible. So again, you can see how his thinking it, it's predicated on one conclusion after another conclusion, and if you start in a wrong place... Guess what's going to happen? Further and further and further justifications that build this edifice of what seems to be coherent, logical thinking, but it's on a faulty premise. And it forces you to have to reinterpret what is clear in Scripture over and over and over again instead of taking it for what it says. So again, this whole issue of the will, you remember what got... Pelagius exercised at the outset was Augustine's prayer and his confessions, grant what thou commandest and command what thou dost desire. In other words, it's all on you. I'm pleading and I'm begging that you would make this so in, in and through me. And, and that was too much for Pelagius. That's what provoked Pelagius to begin with. Sin is never a matter of nature. It's not, we don't have constitutional depravity, he would say. 
Um, sin is only sin if it can be avoided. If, you, if it can't be avoided, then you can't call it sin. No, I, I don't think that, I, I think that his, I mean, he's, like I said, I mean, much of his writing is devotional in nature. Yeah. So, again, it's just like anything else. I mean, we can get, uh, let me just tell you something. Um, this, I, think, I think some of the same bad habits of thought um, and the same sort of elements of human pride contribute to staunch Calvinists going down a path that diminishes their, um, their commitment to, um, to treating people who think differently with gentleness and respect, to even um, really believe that that their call to gospel mission and witness and evangelism is that compelling? It's the same, it's the same thing. It's just in a different stream. So you can see how you can kind of get trapped into a particular stream of thought that kind of leads you down a path. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't love God or you don't, you're not trying to kind of think lofty thoughts of the goodness. I mean, you see what I'm saying? I mean, he, he found himself... He was exercised by his environment and by the debauchery of people who confessed Christ, both lay people and in the clergy. And so his, his I don't know, what took him directionally down this path was trying to address these things, but he just didn't, he didn't recognize that all I can do is appeal with the gospel to people and pray that God would do a work in their hearts. But the clarity of the gospel and the truth of scripture needs to be proclaimed over and over and over again, trusting that the spirit will do its work. He wanted to raise up man's will. The other thing that you read about in some, in some of the biographical information about him is that he was a, a very um, austere and dignified kind of man, very disciplined. You know, So if you're oriented toward sort of a dignified reputation and, 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 um, and you're very self-disciplined in your life personally, you know, you could see how, you know, you become the standard for how it's possible to live this kind of life of, of obedience and faithfulness out of your will. So he, some of it probably just flowed out of his own mistaken notion about what was required for his own salvation. Um, and just because you're oriented, I mean, the apostle Paul said, if anybody has reason to boast, it's me. A Hebrew of Hebrews, from the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, as to the law, a zealot, as to righteousness, a persecutor of the church, no one has reason to boast more than I do in actually doing right and being disciplined and committed and passionate about it. And then... I realized that was dung. It was loss. It was rubbish. So until you come to that particular, that particular realization before the holiness of God, I mean, anything's possible in, your, in sort of your belief system. Well, I'm totally out of time, uh, so I'm just going to have to stop, and we'll pick this up again next week. Let's pray.